episode of Sassmouth Dames podcast. Today I'm looking at Ladies in Retirement from 1941, starring Ida Lupino and directed by Charles Vidor. Ida Lupino plays a housekeeper who needs to find a home for her sisters, played by Elsa Lanchester and Edith Barrett. Lupino's character asks her employer if she might invite her sisters for a visit. Mayhem ensues. You can watch it on YouTube. The print over there is top quality, too. This episode is spoiler-free. Ladies in Retirement looks and feels like a fairy tale or a novel by one of the Bronte sisters. It definitely combines melodrama and suspense. Isabel Elsom plays Leonora Fisk, a retired stage actress who lives in a snug wee cottage tucked away on the scrubby windblown moors. She lives with a maid Lucy, played by Evelyn Keyes, and head housekeeper Ellen Creed, played by Lupino. The nearest neighbors are cloistered nuns. It adds a touch of irony, since the former high-stepper on stage was once adept at youth, at emptying pockets of men, but now holds sway over nuns by leasing land they need for their crops. Nuns beholden to a chorus girl is a nice touch and lends a modern upgrade to this gothic tale. The film opens with Ellen reading a letter full of bad news. A landlady in London demands that Ellen's sisters be removed from the premises or else she will turn the matter over to police. Ellen's eyes betray a state of desperate panic, but Lupino swallows her emotions, smiles, and presents a placid demeanor to the lady of the house. Ellen asks her employer a small favor if her sisters might return with her for a visit when she meets them in London. Miss Fiss says yes without hesitating and adds that Ellen has become almost like a daughter as she grants her request. Viewers know right away she'll be punished for her generosity. Miss Fisk prepares Ellen for an errand to London to meet with her broker about the state of those Brazilian bonds she has, among other things. Viewers detect a satisfying bit of class reversal here. Miss Fisk may have endured any level of sneering during her professional years on the stage, but now she's the one who's thriving with investments. As they discussed arrangements, Ellen fixes a string of pearls around her employer's neck. Miss Fisk seems to be a woman so at leisure in her retirement that her only problem seems to be when a juicy bonbon smudges her freshly polished tabletop. Her comfortable independence is enviable. She's entirely self-contained, the center of three women in this little gyno cottage. Women dominate the drama with fierce command. The film belongs to women, except for when one ne'er-do-well nephew shows up, the first sign of things turning sour. Poking his head in the window as Miss Fisk sings at the piano, he announces himself as Ellen's niece, Albert. He's overly familiar with Miss Fisk and up to no good. Played by Louis Hayward, Ida Lupino's husband in real life, Hayward presents Albert as a scoundrel, a man who has learned well how much can be gained with an oily charm with women. Fisk recognizes Albert's game for what it is and uses it as a chance for her own nostalgia. She's not seduced by Albert. She identifies his compliments as a grease to open her pocketbook. Clear-eyed Fisk remembers her own youth liberating men from their money and looks at Albert as a chance to repay with interest. 
Like many young men, Albert can only see an old woman. He can't make her out for the sexual libertine she once was. Albert says he stole money from the bank he needs to replace, that he spent it on some actress. Fisk says she knows what happened and finished the story. After dinner, the woman suggested he take her around the shops. She's not buying his flattering lines, but since she read from the same script and wants con men for money, she takes pity on him and promises to give him the 12 pounds he needs. When Albert learns that Ellen will return with her sisters, he fails to offer a good word for them. The potty ones, he gasps. Queer as mice in a cage. Miss Fisk's face registers clear trepidation. After she fetches the key to open up her valuables, we see that she has everything locked up, not in a safe, but in a large bread oven, one that remains the focal point of the sitting room. Albert stares at the lock, key, and oven with enough intensity to melt glass. Like something out of Hansel and Gretel, the oven could easily hold a body, but now only serves as a safe for the actress's hidden treasures. You half expect an alarm to ring, yelling foreshadowing, but no way does this diminish the plot. We wait for what something wicked this way come. When Ellen returns with her sisters in tow, the two older women enter the house like gangbusters. It takes less than a minute for Miss Fisk to realize she's made a grave error, and it registers on her face. Fisk begins to look tired and dyspeptic. Elsa Lanchester's Emily is instantly bellicose and suspicious. She demands her tea and plops down with the air of the queen mother. She's so used to being waited on. Edith Barrett as Louisa is childlike and greedy, grabbing Miss Fisk's possessions and claiming them as her own. The sisters are loud and shrink the room with the force of their presence. It turns out that Ellen had been running a curio shop stocked full of their family possessions, all that was left of a once grand ancestral home. The Creeds lost their land and their house. Miss Fisk bought the family furnishings and installed them in her own cottage, perhaps as a shortcut to consolidate the trappings of peerage to make over her own career in the chorus line. Somehow, Ellen finagled a job from their transaction. The film jumps ahead in time. When Ben Franklin said guests like fish begin to smell after three days, he could not have imagined the miasma that torments Miss Fisk after six weeks with the Creed sisters. Her nerves are shattered. Her peaceful retreat has been entirely demolished by Ellen's sisters. She's lamenting one of her fringe shawls that the sisters had stained. She complains that it's like living in the middle of Piccadilly Circus cleaning up after those two. We need only one economical scene that stands in for all the others we haven't seen. Emily throws open the front door, hauling a blanket full of twigs and odd pieces. Lucy, the maid, protests that they have no room in the kitchen or the shed for any more sticks. Emily's compulsive gathering excursions have stuffed the house full. Cantankerous Emily responds by dumping her haul in the middle of the living room floor and then dumps another load with shells and bits on the cherrywood Queen Anne table. Emily remains defiant and objects when Fisk attempts to clear the shiny table of the detritus, which includes a dead bird that Fisk casts into the hearth. Emily screams in hysterics and rescues the dead bird. Crouched over like she's stirring a cauldron over a flame, 
Emily clutches the bird and offers an explanation for her hoarding, that it's been so long since they've had such nice things. She gathers up what she finds we see because the family lost their possessions along with everything else. Fisk won't listen to Ellen's assurances that she'll polish the table or set matters right. All of the tension and suspense in the film stems from how sympathetic the two women are in their plight. Ellen attempts to do everything possible to save her sisters from an asylum during an era when torture and indignity befell those who were deemed mentally unfit. We believe Ellen when she begs Fisk to let them stay, that she will work for free and take care of them and cook their dinners. She's so earnest and only wants the best for her family. In her desperation, though, Ellen tries to shame and then guilt Miss Fisk into allowing Emily and Louisa to stay. It shifts our empathy back to the beleaguered woman of the house. Ellen charges Fisk with having earned her money in dubious circumstances, while the creeds were always morally upright. She tries to high-hat Fisk with her former position, where women only had to worry about making a suitable marriage to assure their future. Ellen's attempt to sneer at Fisk, earning a career on the stage, is cheap and cruel. Then Ellen reverses tactics and claims that Fisk should take pity on those who have little as she once did, and that she owes it to those less fortunate. After six weeks of nonsense, of tiptoeing around women who seem like spoiled brats, Fisk finally snaps. And who can blame her? Ellen, you're a hypocrite. You're worse. You're a cheat. You meant to foist your wretched brood upon me and bleed me white. And when I saw through your little scheme, you had the insolence to turn on me and abuse me. But you've chosen the wrong woman. You get those sisters of yours out of this house at once, and you take a month's wages and go with them. Ellen had manipulated and taken unfair advantage of Miss Fisk. There's no stalemate here over who has the right to feel most aggrieved. Fisk worked hard for her home. Why should she be made to feel miserable in it to aid rich women down on their luck, who would have looked right through her if the situations were reversed? If viewers compare the former painted lady with the former aristocracy, the nuns, or the man who works in the bank, only the lady of dubious reputation is flush with pounds to feather a quiet nest. And there's something really satisfying about the way Fisk thrives despite the odds against her. Lupino's character tells a pack of lies throughout the picture. She must internalize any shred of anxiety about being caught out. She's closed off, tight-lipped, even after her beloved sisters arrive. She keeps them in the dark along with everyone else. Lupino keeps her chin tucked in to where it's almost on her chest when she's trying to conceal falsehood from her employer, or the maid, or her sisters, or the convent nuns, but especially from her nephew Albert. She pulls herself inside like a turtle. When Albert returns to the cottage, he notes, bad pennies always turn up. There's a moment of sexual tension between Ida and Lewis in the basement when she goes down to fetch a bottle of brandy. He leans in close and tells her that she's all keyed up and that some of his foolishness might do her a bit of good. It's only a few seconds, but their exchange on the stairs screams a shared erotic past, something furtive and smoking hot, whether or not he's actually related to her. It further shows how much Ellen has sacrificed for her spoiled sisters. 
Vitor injects proper frights with simple props like a wig, which proves that you don't need fancy special effects to create a sinister atmosphere. And the living room's low ceiling adds to not only a feeling of claustrophobia, but it also magnifies the oven sitting in the middle of the room. It helps cast creepy shadows that anticipate the noir aesthetic. As the allegorically named Ellen Creed, Ida Lupino has no trouble filling the role. Harry Cohn, head of Columbia Studio, yelled at the producer Lester Cowan, you are out of your mind choosing this child to play that role. 23-year-old Ida Lupino probably relished the boss's lack of faith in her ability to play a murderer. In the stage production, her character was played by Flora Robson and meant to look 60 years old. The director, Charles Vidor, wanted Ida to look 40 years old. To age her, he had cinematographer George Barnes light her harshly. Yes, George Barnes, Joan Blondell's worm of a first husband. Ida wore little makeup for the role and wore a big pile of hair. She in no way looks 40, but she doesn't need to. If anything, a youthful appearance adds to her rash behavior. She has a bare, stripped-down quality that adds to the severe repression of her character. Not for a minute do you doubt Lupino in the role. She didn't feel competition or pressure while working with her husband, Lewis Hayward, because they had different approaches to acting. He would memorize his lines to gain inspiration on set. Of her method, Ida reflected, as quoted in William Donati's biography of Ida Lupino, I take a script and mull it over and underline the bits I want to emphasize. When I go to the set, I know exactly what I want to do. See, I haven't spoiled anything for you in this episode. Go and watch it if you haven't already. I'll leave you with a short essay that Ida Lupino wrote titled Me, Mother Directress, included in the book Hollywood Directors, 1941 to 1976, by Richard Kozarski, published in 1977. On the set, they call me mother. The actors, the cameramen, the assistant directors, the grips, everybody. Not that mother, just plain mother. They started years and years ago when I had my own independent company, and we made a policy of discovering and using young talent. Some of the kids, like Sally Forrest, who started Not Wanted for me nearly 20 years ago, were so young it was natural for them to call me mom or mother. From that time on, the name was picked up by everybody, so that now if somebody on the set should call me Ida or Miss Lupino, I would know what to do. I love being called mother. For when I am working, I regard my production company, motion picture or television, as a very special kind of family. The producer, the writers, actors, and crew, we talk and feel and work things out together. We do everything together. We are indeed one big family. The happier, the better. I would never think of treating my cast and crew as anything else. I would never shout orders to anyone. I hate women who order men around, professionally or personally. I think it is horrible in business or in the home. I've seen bossy women push their men around, and I have no respect for the gal who does or the man who lets himself be pushed around. I wouldn't dare do that to my old man. When we were married, they said it would last three months. It's now 17 years. It's because I don't ever order him around. I learned that, and I don't do it with the guys on set. I say, darlings, mother has a problem. I'd love you to do this. Can you do it? It sounds kooky, but I want to try it. Now, can you do that for me? And they do it. They just do it. 
That goes for the leading man and the leading lady too. I don't ever say, do this. I want you to stand there. I want you to do that. Having been an actress, I know what it's like to have been put in an uncomfortable position. If someone had come up to me and asked, does this feel comfortable? It would have made all the difference in the world. I would never think of indulging in what has come to be known as the woman's right to change her mind. As soon as I get a script, I go to work on it. I study and I prepare. And when the time comes to shoot, my mind is usually made up and I go ahead right or wrong. If I get the script in time, I prepare on a weekend. I go out to the back lot or on the sets on Saturday and Sunday when it's nice and quiet and map out my setups. I do that every time it's at all possible. I went on the back lot at Universal a while back to prepare a Virginian, but I had forgotten those studio tours, you know, 12,000 people traipsing all over the place over the weekend. There I was on set, dripping wet and killing heat, wearing no makeup, looking like a witch searching for an old house to haunt, and these tours started coming through. The bright young know-it-all guide would happily tell his eager charges, and there, ladies and gentlemen, is the famous actress-directress, Ida Lupino, preparing for the Virginian. I tell you, I wanted to die. I was in dire need of a friend, and luckily I found one, a studio policeman. He sympathized with me and my need to work in peace and anonymity, and so he'd keep track of the tour trains, and when one was coming, headed my way, he'd rush over like a latter-day Paul Revere and signal, the tourists are coming. Then I'd duck behind a building and hide. I never planned to become a director. The fates and a combination of luck, good and bad, were responsible. For about 18 months back in the mid-40s, I could not get a job in pictures as an actress. Along with Anne Sheridan and Humphrey Bogart and John Garfield, who were all under contract at Warner's, I was on suspension. It seems like we were always on suspension because we wouldn't do some of the shows we were asked to do. I don't know whether it was Jack Warner or who it was, but all I know was when you turned something down, they suspended you and you stayed suspended. But I was the only one who had a radio clause in my contract, so I was able to keep alive as a radio actress. I was working every solitary week doing radio, Silver Theater with Boyer on his show, with Tyrone Power, with C.B. DeMille on the Lux Theater. Then Collier Young and I formed our own production company, called it The Filmmakers. We co-wrote a screenplay about unwed mothers titled Not Wanted and put it before the cameras. We had just started shooting when Elmer Clifton, our director, suffered a heart attack. We were much too poor to afford another director, so I stepped in and took over. Those were thrilling days for us. We co-wrote and co-produced, and I went on to direct each successive film. We discovered new talent, and we did the kind of film that is new wave today. We tackled topics that were pretty daring at the time, unwed mothers, under-the-table payoffs in amateur tennis, a hitchhiker's cross-country crime spree, 13 murders, bigamy, and polio. We would shoot those films in about 13 days at a budget of less than $200,000. They were A pictures. We were doing fine, but we made one fatal mistake. We got talked into going into the distribution business. I opposed the move every step of the way. We're creative people. We're picture makers, I argued. We know nothing about distribution. Let's stay away from it. But I was outvoted, and pretty soon we were out of business. 
While we were still in operation, a darling cameraman named George Diskant came over to do one of our films, The Bigamist, with Joan Fontaine and Edmund O'Brien and Edmund Gwen. He said, Ida, I'm in with a group called Four Star with some old buddies of yours, David Niven, Charles Borier, and Dick Powell. Why don't you come over and go into television? Television, I screamed. Really, George, you're out of your mind. Well, the next thing I knew, David Niven called me up and he said, Loopy Koopy, I know you're against television, but come over and do a guest spot on our show anyway. Oh, Niv, I can't. The whole thing just scares me. He said, come over and just do one. So I went over and I did this one shoot. And the next thing I knew, Dick and David said, now look, you must be the the guest who came to dinner. Stay with us. So I stayed with them for two years. I was the guest who never left and became the fourth star of Four Star Playhouse and loved every minute of it and never missed directing. Then, during a summer hiatus, Collier Young asked me to direct Joseph Cotton in On Trial. And having been inactive as a director for so long, I could not believe the offer. Are you sure Mr. Cotton wants me, I said? And the answer was yes. It was the trial of Mary Surratt, and I hadn't directed for so long I was nervous, so nervous. That was my first directorial job after having acted for two and a half years. Then I did Screen Director's Playhouse, then Adam and Eve. I didn't direct any of those. I can't direct myself. I have to have somebody else do it. When that was over, my husband had a new series, and strangely enough, he and the producer asked me to direct the pilot. No, I said, I can't possibly do that. I'd be far too nervous directing you, Howard. He said, but I want you to do it. So I went ahead and I did it, and the show sold. Then I went on to do the thrillers and the General Electrics and the Have Gun Will Travels and Sunset Strips and Tates and Hong Kong, Untouchables and Hitchcocks and Sam Benedict's and Novak's. I did so many Westerns and action shows that I was looked upon as a director who could not direct a man and a woman story. For a long time, I couldn't get a job directing a love story. I could do a lot of soul searching and conjecturing on that state of affairs, wonder out loud why the male producers around town did not think a woman knew about love. It took Stanley Rubin of General Electric Theater to get me to direct a love story again between Ann Baxter and the present governor of California, Mr. Ronald Reagan. Speaking of love stories and love scenes, I was offered a script a while back that I still can't believe. I was asked to direct it, not act in it. It was something. And I'm no prude. I'll go and enjoy a picture like Room at the Top. If you want to show a man and a woman in their relationship, fine, as long as it's done with taste. But if you want to show filth, I'd sooner starve. I won't do it. I don't see any reason for the rage of the moment where everybody has to be either bottomless or topless. Why, I don't know. There are so few pictures that you can go and see now and take the kids. For instance, night games. You know, I don't know. I practically lost my lunch. Now then, getting back to that script I was offered. In one of the opening scenes, a party scene, a bunch of teenagers are all, you know, fine, flying. They run out of ice, so one of the boys goes into the bathroom to fetch some out of the bathtub. But when he gets there, a young boy and a young girl are making love atop the cubes in the tub. Without interrupting them, the boy reaches under and scoops out some cubes and puts them in an ice bucket and leaves. Then I got rather sick to my stomach. 
I've had some offers to direct out of the country in Spain, Italy, and Greece, all thoroughly acceptable scripts. But I have my old boy and my daughter, and I love them, and life is too short for me to live without them for five or six or seven months. I just won't go. I'll do all of my directing close to home. What I'd really like to do is pick up in 1967 where we left off, some 10 years ago or so, with an independent company, discovering new talent, writing our own scripts, and making good provocative pictures at the right price. I am now polishing an original screenplay called Murders and Minuets, a suspense story that I'm really excited about. When I'm satisfied with a script, I'd like to direct it. That's what we did for a decade, and that's what I want to do again. That's filmmaking. Thanks for listening. Join me again next time when I'm talking about Anna Lucasta from 1958 starring Eartha Kitt. Thanks very much.